Hello and welcome to Theology Matters. This is Dr. John Clark. And today we're going to continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we've mentioned a couple of times the importance of under Sermon on the Mount, especially because it's so often misunderstood and misapplied. And just as a reminder, the context is Jesus Christ is speaking to a Jewish audience, and not only that, but the nation of Israel to whom he is presenting the kingdom that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. This was an audience that had they received the king and received his message would have been the generation that entered into the kingdom. And so a lot of the uh, Sermon on the Mount is directed toward uh, with that mindset. And uh, we looked at the key verse, really the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5.20. And it relates to uh, Jesus saying that unless their righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, they will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And what we've been looking at since then is is really uh, the interpretations of rabbinical teachers of the day, how their level of righteousness was a substandard level of righteousness. It was lower than God's righteousness. And so Jesus does, uh, he picks uh, six different uh, interpretations of the law that the, that the rabbis held that were not accurate, that were not taking into account God's standard of righteousness. And so he calls those uh, interpretations out. And he says, you have heard it was said, but I say to you, uh, and he did that through Matthew chapter five. Uh, and then uh, as we got into chapter six, he he now begins to describe some of the hypocritical behaviors of the Pharisees. And we looked at last time that the, the Pharisees were doing charitable things just so that others could see them doing them. They were praying uh, so that other people would notice them. And then we get into the third hypocritical behavior in verses 16 through 18, which reads, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. Figure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so that third hypocritical behavior by the Pharisees was fasting for, for other people's notice. Again, you know, letting people know that you're fasting or they were letting people know that they were fasting in order to receive praise and admiration from others. And that's just not rewardable by God because fasting, when it's done that way, is, is done with wrong motives. Again, Jesus is going to the heart of righteousness here, um, not just the external actions, which is what the Pharisees were confusing. Now, the fourth hypocritical behavior will take us all the way through chapter six. And it has to do with occupation with wealth and then the anxiety and worry that results with this occupation. Now, due to the length of the passage, we won't read that uh, for time's sake, but this is a passage where uh, Jesus is really communicating that heavenly rewards and wealth are far, far more valuable than obtaining, accumulating, or storing wealth on earth. And the truth of the matter is that whatever one is occupied with becomes that one's object of worship. And so occupation with wealth and God results in one being worshiped and the other being ignored. And so the anxiety that results from being occupied with money, uh, either either occupation with gaining more money or occupation with not having enough, it's the same type of occupation. Uh, it's normal for unbelievers, but it's a lack of faith for the believer. In fact, 32 says this, for after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly father knows 
that you need these things. And the implication is if your heavenly father knows you need them, then he's going to provide them. And so a believer doesn't need to worry about these things the same way unbelievers do. And notice the exhortation Jesus' specific audience uh, in verse 33. Again, this puts a a context and a timestamp on this message. It gives us an idea of where this is being said and uh, why Jesus is saying it. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So again, you, you see that the the focus there for his audience is is this kingdom, this this kingdom which is at hand, Jesus had been teaching. And, and not only that, but not seeking a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. In other words, try harder than the Pharisees, but no realizing that in order to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus's audience needed God's righteousness, and that can only come through faith in the Messiah. So this can make this promise, though, and this, again, goes back to our context in verse 33. He says, again, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. These are material promises uh, that are made to the nation of Israel specifically and will be fulfilled in the new covenant. We seek to try to apply it. You know, a similar teaching in terms of applying you know, this type of teaching about worry and anxiety is, is transdispensational as well. It can be found in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, um, where it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which guards your uh and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so you see a similar teaching on worry and anxiety, even in the New Testament. But what's interesting is in Philippians 4, the promised outcome is not material blessing, but rather spiritual blessing, peace. And so you see a contrast even in the dispensational interpretation here. Uh, additionally, 1 Peter 5, 7 teaches that the believer can cast all their care upon God because he cares for the believer. Again, not necessarily material blessing, but just that God knows how and he does care for the believer. So finally, uh, the the fifth hypocritical behavior, and the last one that Jesus is going to address, is found in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And this is really criticizing others while excusing yourself. Criticizing others and then you of one thing while you possibly do that same exact thing in a different way. And so Matthew 7, 1 through 6, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces." And so here we see the Pharisees were guilty of judging others while excusing or minimizing their own faults. Oftentimes, the very things the Pharisees condemned others of doing, they were engaged in too. But but they were engaged in it in a more acceptable way, quote unquote, uh, that didn't make them look as bad. And so they practiced destructive criticism that tore others down, but built themselves up. Now, Jesus spent a lot more time detailing this hypocrisy in Matthew 23, 
verses 1 through 36. He also spoke to it uh, in Mark, a little bit shorter example, Mark 7, 11 through 13. Jesus then describes those Pharisees who would not respond to the truth he had been communicating his teaching. And so at some point, they would not only reject the teaching as unworthy error, but also turn and attack the messenger with great violence. And so again, you see this hypocrisy going forward by the Pharisees. And so now Jesus is going to to switch to three principles concerning prayer. Uh, Verses 7 through 12, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Uh, For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, The three principles concerning prayer here are ask or keep on asking, seek or keep on seeking, and knock or keep on knocking. And, you know, what's really interesting is this teaching, it it seems a little out of place here. Why did Jesus switch back to prayer here? Well, um, if we look at the, the Lord's Prayer as recorded in Luke 11, 1 through 13, um, this same teaching of asking, knocking, and seeking follows the Lord's prayer there. And so it could that could be tied um, to, to Matthew 6, 5 through 15. Our passage here in chapter 7 could have followed Matthew 6, 5 through 15, and uh, definitely would have provided the context and the flow a little bit better, just going with the, the prayer section in Matthew 6, where um, you know Jesus speaks about the, the fact that the Pharisees would pray to be noticed, and then he gives what's been known as the Lord's prayer. And then this teaching with these three principles, you know, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, seems to probably have followed that better in context. And that's how it's ordered in, in the Luke passage. Um, so so anyways, whether or not it, it belonged there or it's out of order in Luke, it, it, it still is a, you know, provides three principles on persistent prayer. And, um, you know, this is, again, not unique to the Sermon on the Mount, the overall teaching uh, is found elsewhere, you know, persistence in prayer, pray without ceasing, you know, First Thessalonians 5.17. Again, just a trans-dispensational uh, truth that that persistent prayer is of value to, to God and to a believer. So Jesus also mentions how his disciples should respond if they are the ones who are asked for things. And this also ties well back with chapter 5 in Matthew, verses 38 through 42. Now, as we move into the the, the last section here um, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to give three, what I'll call pairs comparisons, and then one example uh, given of the narrow gate and way to life. And so the, the pairs comparisons that he gives um, are going to be two gates in two ways, two types of teachers, and two kinds of builders. Those are the kind of Pairs comparisons he's going to give. And so let's look at the first one in verses 13 through 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And so we see this first pairs 
comparisons of two gates in two ways. Now, pharisaical religion in general, this is basically religion in general, thinks in terms of corporate salvation. Basically, if this certain group maintains a level of certain religious rituals, external compliance or rights, uh, religious rights, and the whole group would be in. Jews in Jesus's time felt like they were in the kingdom automatically because, number one, they were ethnic, physical children of Abraham. Number two, they felt like they were in because they were circumcised. And number three, they felt like they were in because they tried to observe the Mosaic law. Now, Jesus uses some pretty strong language there. He says that there are few who find it. And so this verse tells us that only a minority will enter the kingdom of heaven because the gate which leads to life is described as narrow and the way which leads to life is described as difficult. You know, one of the things we learn in the Old Testament from Zechariah 13, 8 through 9 is that only one third of the Jewish people alive during the tribulation period will be saved and enter the millennial kingdom. That's definitely a minority compared to two thirds. And so Jesus also says of the other group, there are many who go in by it. And so in contrast to the minority who find, quote unquote, that narrow gate or that difficult way, there are, there are many who will pursue the wide gate and the broad way that leads to destruction, hell. And you know, what's, what's ironic is when you consider this, this concept of pharisaical religion, just religion in general, when you consider it, most religious people, I would say the majority of religious people think that you have to behave to get into heaven. They think you have to behave a certain way, perform a certain way to get into the kingdom or to get into heaven. And it's so, it's so tragic because that's the majority of thought. And, and Jesus is very clear. There's going to be the majority are going to go in this wide gate in this broad way, which leads to destruction, basically pursuing a righteousness of their own, not realizing that they need God's righteousness to enter the kingdom of God or eternity as it were. So the encouragement is certain. Do not just follow the crowd of religious leaders in the direction they're going. Know the word of God, believe the message of righteousness by faith that Jesus and John was preaching. In other words, you must be born again. 